When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And you don't know it, but you're the mark. Everyone is showering you with love. They're kind of whittling down your defenses and starting to make you more and more dependent on feeling part of that group. Once they get you isolated for a long time, they start layering in the theology, which eventually kind of ends with, oh, by the way, Reverend Moon is the Messiah. Would you like to join? It's finally here, my long-awaited episode, with Elgin Strait, who grew up in the Moonies cult, also known as the Unification Church, run by Sun Myung Moon, a Korean man who claimed to be a kind of messiah. The Moonies exploded into the mainstream in the 1970s due to the exposure of its mass weddings. These enormous wedding ceremonies were a key tenet to the Moonies' belief system because... Moon claimed that only by marrying one another could they procreate and produce pure children. It's all a bit Harry Potter and therefore be made pure themselves. This led to all sorts of child transporting or trafficking between families, particularly when one wasn't able to conceive, leaving many children feeling bewildered and unsure of their place And it's all very sad, really. As Elgin alludes to in the episode, it led to a sensation of being a commodity because the belief was that having or adopting a child was the only way to get into heaven. So you felt a bit used, like you were the ticket for them to get to heaven. I had been speaking to Elgin for a while about setting up a podcast interview and we just missed each other at the True Crime Convention a couple of months ago, but we've been talking on Twitter, messaging about. And just as we were getting round to it, the Japanese former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated. And you may think, what's that got to do with the price of eggs? Well, it was allegedly done for a Mooney-related reason that I had no idea about, so I was fascinated to learn this from Elgin. And he'll divulge more and tell us about his own upbringing in the cult and how he left it. Of course, in today's episode, we only scratched the surface, so if you want to know more and hear from more voices, ex-Moonies, people who left the cult, uh, do check out his amazing podcast, Falling Out. Uh, You'll get it in all the normal places. Coming up on this here podcast is the Coffin Confessor who reveals the secrets of the dead he's back on. Prof Nutt, or Professor Nutt, who talks about psychedelics. Annie Ikba on child sacrifices in Africa. And Benjamin Boyce on issues of woke academia at his old college. So a big bundle of different themes and topics and people. It's going to be great. But now you're on the edge of the Moonies and the assassination of Shinzo Abe with Elgin Strait. Welcome to On The Edge with Andrew Gold. I finally got you on. We've been talking for a while. How are you doing, Elgin? I'm doing all right. Uh, It's great to be here. Um, And actually, before we start, can I just say, um, so I've been a fan of your show for a while, um, and I specifically remember listening to episodes one and two uh, with Nate Phelps and Emily Green, um, and I just resonated a lot with with 
what they said uh, for reasons that we can come to later on, but also with how you how you approach them as as guests. Uh, and I just admire the way that you did that. Um, so it's it's an honor to be here. And um, as I've been doing this whole thing, which we'll come to talk about, I've been trying to, I guess, apply a little kind of like layer of filter to who I talk to. Um, and you, you passed the test based on your track record. So <laughs> congrats. Oh, thank you. What lovely things to say. I don't know how to take the compliment. What do I do? I'm too right. British to take. To take oh, the, I, I'm glad I can't take like them it. either. I can't take them either. But yeah, no, it's, it's great to be here. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, those episodes, man. Because people, a lot of people now got, got into the podcast just quite recently, and there's like 150 episodes in, and they don't know about the early ones. And that was the first ever one was the Westboro Baptist Church, as you say, Nate Phelps. And that was just like, I was so excited that he was going to come on. And then he did, and he was so cool, wasn't he? He's, yeah. he's just great. He's awesome. And I've actually I, I connected with him afterwards and just said, hey, I really resonated with a lot of what you said. Um, and he uh, he just had, like, there's just so much relevance between his experience and my experience. And um, we we conceptually talked about him coming on my show. We've both agreed to it. We just It hasn't happened yet, but I would I would like to make that happen at some point. Well, that's really nice. I hope you do, yeah, because he's just, he's just wonderful and lovely. And then the next, Emily Green, man. I went to her house. I, I haven't met many people I've had on the podcast in real life, but uh, I went to her house actually like a year before doing the podcast episode with her because I was looking at doing something for like a documentary or whatever. And she's just so nice. And like I think like, and I, I don't know yet about all of your story, but I mean, in terms of a lot of other people who are ex people who are in cults, hers is really, I think the, the Hasidic Jewish one is really like, you know, you come out of that, you don't even speak English, a lot of them. I mean, she does, but with a bit of an accent. And it's just like, yeah, really, really out there, that one. Yeah, it, it was quite extraordinary listening to that. Uh, and the, the bits that she was talking about, about arranged marriage, that is... Uh, that happened to me basically, uh, so I I resonated with that a lot. And again, we can we can talk about that. Uh, and I think it's interesting. All of these all of these like high demand groups they have different. Each one has one thing that's like less bad than the other, but then they have another thing that's like way worse than the other. And I I I, I don't know. It's hard it's hard to pick which which out of any particular group is is worse than the other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at, I mean, just listening to your podcast, you talk in one of the first episodes about, you know, rape, murder, suicide, neglect, abandonment. So we're going to have to demonetize this on YouTube, the YouTube version. They won't let me advertise after saying all those words in a row. But uh, labor, <laughs> child, labor and child trafficking, um, children. I'm just, I'm because I know it's going to be demonetized anyway. I'm just getting all those okay. things out there. But I mean, horrible <laughs> things. And, and, and yeah. you know, we'll get on to those. But um because we've got a news tie-in, I'm really interested yeah. just to start with. In in obviously, you know, the Japanese former prime minister Shinzo Abe was was assassinated the other day. Yeah. So how does that tie in with the Moonies? Because that didn't even cross my mind at all. Yeah. Well, and this okay, and this actually goes kind of goes back to what I opened this this conversation with, which is like all of a sudden people want to talk to ex Moonies, uh, and I've been banging this drum for the last year and a half. Uh, about the abuses of this organization. And I feel like I've been screaming into a void uh, with some people listening, but not many. And now all of a sudden after Abe is assassinated, everyone wants to talk to me. Surprise, surprise. And I have to say for the record, you and I were organizing this before the Abe assassination. Uh, so, and everyone else, I'm kind of like, where, where were you when I was doing that screaming, you know? Um, so, I guess the way it all ties in, and I guess this is what we talk, we talk a lot about this on my show, is that the, the Unification Church is effectively, it's, I think calling it a religion is a misnomer, and I think it's, that's an intentional 
misdirection on their part. It's it's more like a vast constellation of front groups that serve to bring money and power to the Moon family. And and to give you a sense of the, the order of magnitude here, um, I, I found a list from 1980 that had over 1,400 front groups listed on it. And that wasn't all of them. And that was it in 1980. So over... over. Wait, what's a front group? So uh, the classic example... Okay, well... I'll give you a few examples, um, and and the last one is going to be the one that that ties in with um, with Abe. Although there are there are multiple, but um, so uh, some of them are ostensibly businesses, uh, and so uh, probably the best example of that is is a company called True World Foods, uh, based in the U.S. Uh, it's the largest distributor of sushi in the U.S. and also the largest in Europe. So if you eat sushi in either either of those geographies, there's a ninety percent chance that it's coming through a Mooney Run business. Uh, those businesses are built on the backs of labor trafficked individuals. And we can talk about what that means, but these are people who are fundamentally coerced by the organization to work either for nothing or for um, way below market rates and in very poor conditions. Uh, that's how that business was built on the backs of, of, of that effectively of, of, of labor trafficking. That's, that's one of many front groups. Uh, they own the Moonies own the Washington times, the newspaper in the U S which has become a, font of misinformation and disinformation i've spoken about that in other places um they own they owned i don't know if they still own a jewelry company called christian bernard um they own a recording studio in new york called manhattan it's the manhattan center studios they they own a hotel called uh, it's called the new yorker hotel i used to live there when i was a kid um and then they own and that's i mean that's just like the, the that's that's a, that's a drop in the bucket to to start with, uh, and then they own a, an ever changing cast of uh, effectively NGOs um, that they say are sort of working towards the goal of world peace, uh, and so they have names like uh, the Women's Federation for World Peace, the Universal Peace Federation, the International Media Association for Peace, the International Parliamentarian, Parliamentarians, excuse me, Association for Peace. Uh, and what all of these front groups do, um, especially those ones that have peace in their name, um, they host these conferences. And at those conferences, in general, they attract big name speakers by paying them money. And that money comes from the money comes from people who are coerced. And in the case of the, the killer of, of Shinzo Abe, um, we can talk about Japan as, as, as a whole in a second, but basically Japan is the, is the, is the, the, the money center of the unification church for a variety of reasons. But first of all, they're, they're scamming non-church members at, at, at a very high level. There is, there was a report from 1995 that they were getting about $300 million a year by scamming widows. Uh, and the way that scam works is by, Basically, finding finding a widow who has recently um, suffered, you know, the loss of a of a husband in their family. Usually, um, that person probably has a big life insurance policy. Uh, you knock on their door, uh, and you basically basically say, "Hey, I'm a spiritual medium. I can hear your your husband's please please for help in the spirit world. Um, he's really suffering, and if you buy this little pagoda to put in your house for a hundred thousand dollars, you can you can you can stop his please. Um, this is this is the sort of crap that they're doing um to milk to milk you know pensioners and widowers in japan uh and so there were reports in the 90s that they were making 300 million dollars a year just from that scam in the 90s uh and these people aren't even the members uh and then the church members are um 
placed under an enormous amount of financial pressure. To give you a sense, in, in the West, uh, all of our parents were um, coerced to giving giving away at the very minimum to start with 10% of their pre-tax income to the organization. In Japan, that's 30%. Um, so yeah, um, and, and that's pre-tax, right? So after tax, you're probably, you're looking at probably half um, is gone um, to the organization right off the bat. Um, and these are for people who are probably working for Moody run businesses anyway, um, and and doing so at you know below market and in horrible conditions to begin with. That's just that's just the the first layer of the of the coercion. But then they have other layers where every month there's a new providence that requires some sort of financial contribution. Could be a hundred bucks, could be a thousand bucks. And they also have what I consider to be modern day indulgences, uh, which is a scheme where they basically say, "Hey, you." As a, as a living, breathing human vessel on the physical earth, you, you bear the responsibility for all the sins of your ancestors. And the way that you can alleviate them um, from the pain of, of, of all that sin is, surprise, surprise, by paying the Unification Church uh, to, remove, to, to remove that sin from them. And that is a grift that has no end because they can, they can start with, okay, this, this year you need to liberate 10 generations for – $10,000. Okay, next year, guess what? The next 10 generations, due to the glorious providence of our true parent, Sun Myung Moon, we are now able to offer you the amazing opportunity to liberate the next 10 generations of ancestors. And guess what? That's going to cost you another 10 grand. Um, and that, that well never runs dry, right? They can, they can always, that, that, that always goes back. But then to bring it all back to Abe, so that's been going on in Japan and around the world for a long time. Um, and what happens with the money is number one, it goes into the pockets of the Moon family, uh, and they live exorbitant lives. Um, number two, it's it goes to paying high-profile VIPs to speak at events hosted by one of these front groups, so groups like the Universal Peace Federation, the International Media Association for Peace, the International Parliamentarians for Peace. If you look at the websites for these places, they, they look like sort of quasi-UN NGOs. Um, but if you dig into it, um, eventually they will usually kind of mention that it has something to do with with one of the, the members of the Moon family. Um, and then you have these events where Shinzo Abe has spoken, Donald Trump has spoken, Mike Pence has spoken, Mike Pompeo has spoken. Um, all of these people have spoken at these events. So they've taken money from the Moonies to speak at these events. They go and speak at those events. Uh, and then... The Moonies go to their members and they say, "Hey, look, Shinzo Abe spoke at our spoke at our event. This is this is further evidence that um, that people in the world are are starting to understand, you know, the value of the work of the Moon family. Um, so their mere presence at these places is 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 furthering the cycle of abuse, and it's used as a as a further lever of co- of coercion, effectively. So." I completely understand the, the the Abe killer's rationale, his his, his motivation. Like Abe, Abe, like I understand why he was a target because he spoke at those events. Um, he he was you know part of the system that exploited this guy's mother. So is that what happened then? Yeah, it was his mother had been uh, you know lost money to the Moonies. Yeah, so it was a guy. Who, so I. I I was born into the Moonies, uh, but this guy wasn't. Uh, he was about my age. Um, he was he wasn't born into the Moonies. Um, his mother um, was a widower, uh, I think, around the age of ten. Um, I, I don't know the, the exact timeline, but sometime 
when this guy was was pretty young, his mother um, was recruited by the Unification Church to become a member um, and gave them an in- incredible amount of money and it bankrupt her. Um, and so this guy, and I think th- there's an important kind of distinction here is like this guy lived a life, he lived a life without the cult and he kind of knew what that was like. And then it was taken away from him when his mother, when his mother joined, joined the cult. Uh, whereas for me, I don't need, I, I never, I don't really have that reference point of like what, what this, what a life looks like without the cult. But for him, he had that reference point and it was taken away from him. And his mother was massively exploited by this organization. And I don't think he was wrong to 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 put Abe to blame for some of that, quite honestly. And next, so it could he just as easily have been Trump or Mike Pompeo or any of these other people who have spoken up? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All all of those people bear the same the same type of guilt. I um, I think there's there's some intricacies in Japanese politics that I don't know personally. Um, but I understand. I think I think Abe's been like speaking at these things for a long time, and there's like other people other politicians in japan who who are also speaking at them i know that there's at least one current member of parliament in japan who spoke at one of these events recently um and it just to give you a sense like there's a long list i i i did a video on youtube recently i'd appreciate if you could link it in the show notes that that kind of outlines all of this but it really it dives into just the type of people that that speak at these at these events and so we're talking these are i spend like probably five minutes just rattling off names on this video and these are people who spoke at one event and they they hold they've hold you know hundreds or not that if not thousands of these events over the over the decades uh, and people on that list include some people i've mentioned before uh other names that come to mind uh stephen harper the former prime minister of canada uh former president of spain i Jose Manuel Barroso, this name comes up a lot, former prime minister of Portugal, uh, former president of the European Council, current chairman at Goldman Sachs. Um, these are all names. Dr. Sarah Gilbert, uh, the creator of the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine. Um, these are all people who have spoken at these at these events. Um, do, do, do you think they're all aware of how destructive the cult is or do they think it's no different to maybe going to a, you know a church of england or a catholic sort of thing and speaking there i think it's possible that in the first the first time they do it it's possible they don't know it's it's possible they don't know and there actually was a, was a case in um uh in the 90s in um in washington dc so i grew up in the dc area uh, and bill cosby was invited to speak at one of these events. He signed a contract to come to the event, uh, and he didn't know. He, he uh, my sense is that he generally didn't know what it was all about. But then once it got closer to the date, he figured out what it was, and he tried to pull out, uh, but they wouldn't let him. Um, and so eventually he did it, but he gave like a really, he gave a really shitty performance. Basically, he just like phoned it in um, because he didn't really want to have anything to do with it. So he kind of he kind of figured it out, but he couldn't pull out. Bill Cosby. They shouldn't want to have anything to do with him either. Yeah, but this was in 95, right? Or around 95. So this is before Bill Cosby was a different type of guy back then uh, than he was now. So I do think sometimes they are genuinely duped. I think if they do it more than once, then they know what the deal is. Yeah. Cos- was, isn't, aren't Cosby's crimes quite historic, a lot of them, anyway? So maybe he wasn't a different kind of guy, but he had a different kind of status back then. He had a different status. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, yeah, his, his crimes are historic, but in 95, no one knew what they were. In, in the way that, that they know now, basically. 
Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Do you know, I mean, what what do you... I think it's a really interesting one, Abbe, because... uh, He's just a face that I knew. I don't know much about uh, international politics, particularly, you know, Far Eastern politics. I don't know anything. But I knew that face for years because he was just ruling for so long. What sort of, what sort of, do you have an idea of of what sort of prime minister he was? What sort of person he was apart from the the Mooney stuff, the speaking? No, I I haven't. Politically, I don't know much about him at all. Um, I've I've heard he is right wing. I've heard the word fascist thrown around, um, but I don't know. I, I don't know anything about Japanese politics, so I I can't really I can't really offer anything there. Well, let's go, let's move on from that and go into your story. Um, so, I mean, you were as you say, you were second generation. That means you were born into it. So, your parents were sort of would you what's the word for it? Hoodwinked by it or tempted by it? Recruited, coerced, coerced. I would say coerced into joining it. Yeah, yeah. So that. So the the primary method that they were using for recruitment in the 60s and 70s, which is when they recruited the most people, um, was sort of classic classic cult uh, recruitment technique. So first of all, they're recruiting people who are at a turning point in their life. Uh, a lot of times, it's people on college campuses or people who've who've recently left left university. Um, and this is common across most cults. Most cults recruit people when they're at a vulnerable state in their life. Um, and the way it works with the Moonies, as well as with many other cults, is someone will approach you, um, you know, on a, on campus or, the, or on the side of the road. It's usually um, a member of the opposite sex. Uh, so in ninety percent of these cases, it's someone from the opposite sex. And and the reason is that there's a little bit of sort of sexual tension and sexual chemistry and energy that kind of puts your guard down. You know, if an attractive person of the opposite sex walks up to you and says, Hey, you know, what, what's going on? Like, let's, you know, that, that you, you would put your guard down, right? You, you would have that conversation. Right. Um, and they then, they then invite you to what seems to be a pretty innocuous event, a, a barbecue or a picnic or, or um, like a, a dinner, quasi dinner party at, at um, a house uh, sort of owned by the organization. Um, and it'll be something like, you know, Hey, we're going to have this, this dinner cause we want to sit around and talk about world peace or we want to talk about ending hunger or poverty would are you interested in in those topics would you like to come and it's it's always like something that is virtually impossible 
to find fault with. It's it's some very airy fairy, you know, big picture thing that would be really difficult for you to say no. I I don't care about world peace. Um, so they end up, uh, some people end up saying yes. They go to this. They go to an event. Um, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a barbecue or a picnic or something like that. Um, and you walk in, and so have you have you heard of the term love bombing? Yes, yes, but go on. Explain explain for those who, who don't. Okay, I want to explain it, but can you tell me what you know of it first? I interviewed Kelly Thiel, and she told me about you know going into Nixium, and it was this thing of just everybody telling her how wonderful she was and how happy they were for her to be there um, and all that kind of thing. And it's, it, my understanding of it is it often happens in cults at the sort of the beginning level. Uh, just it doesn't so much later on, you know, as you go down the line, just to make you feel very special and and sort of cut off ties from the rest of the world. So that's exactly what happens with the Moonies. Uh, and the the Moonies, the Moonies, I shit you not, they invented the term love bombing. Oh, in the sixties and the seventies, they created it. Um, uh, and it's exactly that you walk into you walk into a room at one of these barbecues or or picnics, um, and you don't know it, but you're the mark when you walk in because every all the members know who's a member and they know who's not the member and you walk into that room and it's probably 80 90 percent members and a handful of non-members uh and i don't know what it was like in nexium but that's what it was like in the moonies um uh and when you when you're in that environment everyone is showering you with love they're telling you you're the greatest thing in the world all all of a sudden you're you're the funniest person everyone everyone laughs at your jokes um you're you're the center of attention in a way that that no one ever really is unless you're like a rock star or something or something like that like it's it, it's an artificial sense of attention that is it, it is not really natural and you wouldn't really have in in other circumstances wait so so are you are people then taught later to do that are they told like okay now we've got new people do the love so if they are taught that yes then then they'll remember their first time and would isn't that the most embarrassing that to me that's the most embarrassing thing i can imagine of like hang on when i came in and everyone was laughing at my jokes they were doing it on purpose as a way to get me in oh how embarrassing you'd you'd think that would be the case but what's happened in the mean in the meantime is the process has started has started with that but eventually, and we can come into all the, all the steps, all the steps in a second. But eventually, you get to the point where um, you are taught, and you eventually believe that you have this special knowledge that no one else in the world does. Um, and it's as a result of having that knowledge, it's your job to give other people that special knowledge, and to and the way to get them to understand that and to believe it in the way that you were brought to believe it is to bring them through that yeah, same process. It's an embarrassing. Uh, so. It, it, you'd hope it would be embarrassing, <laughs> but that's what happens when, when you're in that coercive, when, you, when you've been coerced into believing it, then that is what happened. And, and I, I think, you know, I've spoken to some people who have, who've, who've left and were around in those days and, and they express sort of, you know, deep regret in getting involved in it and bringing other people in sure. after experiencing it themselves. Yeah. A lot of guilt. Um, so that's, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean that's that's the first step, and then from there it continues to isolation. So they'll ask you to, you know, it goes from from maybe a dinner or or, or barbecue to, hey, why don't you come to this two day workshop we're having over the weekend? Uh, some it's somewhere like in the country, away from the people you know and love. Um, and back in the day, it's probably a little harder now with cell phones, but back in the day they would you know they would 
basically you couldn't make phone calls. Um, they would kind of stop you from having contact with the outside world or it was very limited. Um, a lot of times you had to like make calls in the presence of someone else, like your handler basically. Uh, so all of a sudden then you're, you're isolated. Um, the love bombing can continues but they also start doing they also start like screwing with some of your other basic bodily functions so you're sleeping less you're eating poorly um and you're doing so you're doing a lot of group activities um it sort of feels like like adult summer camp in a way but what's happening is that they're kind of whittling down your defenses um and starting to make you more and more dependent on feeling part of that group um so that when you leave you kind of you kind of miss it and then when they say hey oh now we're having like a 10 day workshop would you like to attend that or a 20 day then you go uh and that's when they really go in when you go for like a week or week or two um sometimes three that's when they really go for it that's when they they start sort of getting more intense in terms of the in terms of the manipulation you go through these so-called workshops where they they start actually and by the way None of this uh, up till now. N at no point do they ever mention anything about Moon. Uh, you think you're you think you're 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 part of you know this world world peace organization, uh, and then once they get you isolated for a long time, that's when they start they start layering in the theology, which eventually kind of ends with oh by the way, Reverend Moon is the Messiah, uh, and would you would you like to join? Um, and but at that point it's it's this process it's actually not even that long of a process but but it's been sort of a gradual process of breaking you down making you dependent on the group uh, wanting to feel that love whittling down your connection to the outside world and then some people say yes and that's when they that's when they sign on so that's when they sign on and then so your parents signed on you were brought into this world and i've, I've gotten a little bit into the mythology through your episodes uh you know that you were then Okay, let's go into um, the the mythology a little bit, and it's interesting what you're saying because it is so similar to like you know Scientology. No one no one hears about Lord Zenu until uh, they're already so far in. Nixium was a similar thing. You don't hear about the horrible sex stuff you have to do until you're far in. So uh, just a little, and I don't don't go too in depth just because I'm a bit conscious of time because we're sort of halfway through. But a bit of the the the, the purity stuff and the marriage stuff. Okay, yeah, I think that that's a big component of it, and it's it. It has a lot of similarities with other just with other religions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the foundation of the of the Unification Church is uh, basically Moon claims that he received a revelation when he was 16 years old that that told him that the fall of man, as we understand it in the Bible, um, was a sexual crime, effectively. So Eve, and there are two components. First of all, was Eve seduced. The archangel. So Eve, Eve kind of slept with Lucifer. Lucifer became Satan uh, as a result of that sexual act. Uh, and then Eve slept with Adam. Uh, and as a result, they created this. And that was the original sin, basically. So the original sin was sex. Uh, and I, I, for context, I was told this when I was when I was four years old. Uh, and most people in in the cult were told at a very young age um, to have a, gr a very healthy relationship with sex and sexuality. Uh, starting starting with that, all all sin and and evil in the world started with sex. That's that's what it starts with. Um, and then um, the theology goes on to state that um, the the course of human history um, sort of worked its way up to Jesus being born, and Jesus's purpose was not to be crucified, but to have a family. Uh, and to uh, therefore establish a sinless lineage on earth. Um, but 
Jesus was crucified before that could happen, um, leaving his mission unfulfilled, uh, leaving humanity to suffer for another 2,000 years until another Messiah could come to the earth uh, and bring about a so-called pure blood lineage. Uh, thus, enter Reverend Moon, uh, who claims that he alone has the ability to um, give people this so-called pure blood lineage. Uh, and after he's done that, then their kids will be sinless, so-called blessed children. So uh, I was technically, according to theology, I was born a sinless, so-called blessed child. Uh, and as a result of that, it's, according to them, my job to to only procreate with another second generation uh, that has been determined by the organization effectively. Uh, and if I were to ever sleep with anyone else, then I would go to the pits of hell because like literally work, go to a worse place than Hitler uh, because I would have sort of fallen from this position of having this, you know, unique pure blood lineage. And like by throwing that away, then I'm like the worst, worst person ever. Yeah. To part of you as, as a child growing up and hearing that, apart from all the, the mad stuff, you know, did part of you feel a bit special uh, just from a young age? Like, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, completely. That, that's a big part of it. They make you feel special. Yeah. And did you feel special? And, and compared to your parents, because I'm just trying to imagine it, I would almost, almost maybe the germaphobe in me is sort of, I'd see them as like, I love you, mum and dad, but you're a little bit unpure and I'm pure. That was part of it. I think, I, I don't think I ever, I ever necessarily felt that way directly towards my parents, but, but weirdly i there were there were some scenarios where it felt like the the parents were almost like deferential to the kids like oh they're they're blessed blessed children god will protect them so may, maybe we don't need to do that much to protect them because god is looking after them uh because that they're you know they're so special um so weirdly i almost feel like it went the other way and i i i've spoken to someone uh, who grew up in in the cult? Who told me that they saw a letter written by their their mother, uh, and the mother was basically saying, um, "I don't think I can pick up my child because it's not my child; it's it's God's child." Oh my um, god! Yeah, that, that, that's the sort of yeah, the sort of can I curse here? Yeah, um, I insist. That's the sort of shit. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the sort of shit that we were that we were brought up with. No sacred words um, on this channel, although okay, there is good. the demonetization good. thing. But that's already we're way beyond that anyway. And and most people listen on Spotify and Apple and stuff anyway, where there is no demonetization issues with that. So you can say whatever the hell you want, as far as I know. I think that's fine. Um, so tell me a little bit about so your early years and things. What would what are the things that would stand out to people who who'd never heard of the Moonies or never been in a cult that were just like what like and and that you thought were normal at the time? Yeah. So. I guess for me personally, I looking at it from the outside, like I, I grew up in the suburbs in America, basically would, wouldn't have like really raised any eyebrows on, on the, on the outside. But I mean, what was happening what was happening behind the scenes was, um, every, so every week we were waking up, uh, at 5am. Uh, so we had, we had an altar to Reverend Moon in our house. Uh, and actually let me start. So when I was eight days old, um, uh, I was placed in front of this altar, and my parents wore these silk white robes, and they pledged my life to Moon and to his and, and to his family uh, when I, when, you know, when I was just born, basically. Um, and then every Sunday, for as long as I can remember, um, we would wake up at five a.m. Uh, put on our, our suits and like our, our finest, um, and I, 
stand in front of this altar of Moon and his family and do do three full bows to them uh, and pledge our lives to to them, literally, literally pledging our blood, sweat, and tears uh, to to achieve their so-called perfect world on on Earth. Did Did you feel a strong emotion when you did that to, to about Reverend Moon? Yeah, I did. To be to be quite honest, yeah, we were we were taught, yeah, like this guy was the savior. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds it sounds bonkers now, and it is bonkers, but when you're taught from birth, it is and it isn't, you know, because at that age, I was I probably thought thought the same way about Santa Claus and things that I thought were real when I was five years old or four years old. I suppose the difference was that my parents didn't believe in Santa Claus at that at that age, at least as far as I know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like the, it w- it was that level of belief. I would I would say, um, and, and so that was like, so that was happening uh, every Sunday. For a long time, we would wake up every day, every day, every other day that wasn't a Sunday, maybe at like six or seven, uh, and we would we would read the words of Reverend Moon. Uh, sometimes we would do it in the evening. So every day we're like we're reading this stuff. Then um, every Sunday we would go to church. Um, where it, so I, I grew up in the DC area and they have a big a big um, church. Actually, used to be owned by the Mormons uh, in the in the DC area. Um, and so I would go there, and then we had this sort of never ending, um, never ending litany of weekend workshops, spring break workshops, summer camp workshops, where we would go, and uh, the indoctrination would continue uh, in these places. Um, and those would, again, like on the outside, they would probably look like some sort of standard sort of Christian, um, you know, summer camp, but they, they weren't. There. Hi, I'm Andrew Gold, former BBC journalist. I got a little tired of restrictions over who I could interview and what I could say and do. So I made this channel. Click this playlist here and I'll be seeing you on the edge. Going on 13, going on 14 for a year so. Uh, there were about a hundred kids living there, uh, fifty from from the U.S. and Europe, and about fifty from Japan. Um, we had four dorm parents, uh, so it was like it's been described as Lord of the Flies, and I, I think that's accurate. And and w- one of the things we talk about a lot on my show is just the amount of ne- negligence uh, that happens in these environments. Um, so you know, kids have died in in these these sorts of places. What? Uh, yeah. Um, just wh- why? Just being left. Uh, yeah, they're just, they're just, um, no one's looking after them. They're just, there's not enough supervision. There's this, this assumption that like kids are just gonna, you know, they'll be fine because God is looking after them. And that actually t- ties into the, the other point and I'll give you, give you a specific example there. So, um, the church has this, um, youth program. They used to call it special task force. Uh, now they call it generation peace academy. Again, going into the front group, so you can Google this right now, Generation Peace Academy. Um, It's a Mooney front group. Uh, It's a new name for what used to be called Special Task Force, uh, which was a youth program where you would send kids who had just graduated high school, so 17 or 18 years years old, uh, you send them out uh, in groups living in vans uh, for at least a year to go out and sell trinkets on the side of the road, to sell flowers in bars. uh, just to sell anything, basically, they're called mobile fundraising teams, uh, and th- this is these are unsafe circumstances, uh, and the organization just doesn't give a shit about these kids. Um, so, to give you one specific example of a death that occurred due to the negligence of the Unification Church uh, in either two thousand one or two thousand two, uh, a girl who was either seventeen or eighteen years old was out on one of these fundraising trips, um, 
she was in a, a neighborhood somewhere uh it's either in south carolina or north carolina um and so that give you a little context here the, the church has this idea that like you know it's your job to save people and convert them and and first of all if they give you money they're contributing to the providence and it's it's going to be good for them in the spirit world and second of all if you can have a conversation with them that might open their eyes to maybe coming to a to a church event or something like that then um you know, it's going to be good for them. And it's kind of your duty to give them that experience and to work towards giving them that experience. Um, so um, it's quite common for these fundraisers to be invited into people's houses um, when they're knocking on doors. Um, there was a girl, uh, again, 17 or 18 years old uh, in 2001 or 2002, uh, who was knocking on doors, uh, and she ended up being raped and murdered. Um, and no one the killer the killer was 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 caught and is in is in jail now as far as i know but no one in the unification church ever ever suffered any consequences for that no uh, nothing at, at all and this is still happening today they were sending kids out doing this shit in the fucking covid pandemic um i mean it's a it's a fucking heartless organization quite honestly uh and to give you a sense um we did a bit of back of the envelope math on my show um we calculated that the average performer in one of these vans would pull in about $60,000 per year untaxed. Um, and you have maybe eight people in a van. Um, and that's the average performer. Some people could make as much as three mil in a year, uh, completely untaxed, um, going straight up, straight up into the moon org. And they don't get, they don't see much of that in the end, do they? They go, these people see nothing. These people see nothing. And I, there are stories on my show of people, uh, ending up in the hospital, um, you know, from a car accident or a sickness or something like that on one of these things. And, and, and excuse my language, but the fucking Moonies will make them pay for the goddamn medical bill. Um, that's how, that's how fucking heartless they are. Sorry, I'm getting worked up here and using a lot of language, but I, I feel quite strongly about this. No, it's, it's, it's understandable. Um, and at what point then in your childhood or, or adolescence or adult years did you start to, to question some of this? Yeah. So, um, I remember very distinctly, I, w I was 18, and there was a, a book was written by a woman named Nonsa Kong. Um, so she wrote a book called In the Shadow of the Moons. Uh, Nonsa Kong was the wife of one of Moon's sons, in fact, his oldest son, a guy named, named Hyojin. Um, and in her book, she outlined um, how Hyojin was incredibly abusive physically sexually he was a raging cokehead uh, throughout all this as well um she also detailed um how moon had an illegitimate child um and 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 that was a was a real mind blower because this is the guy who to your question earlier i was taught to worship the the guy who was setting the standard of morality and the key standard of morality according to him was so-called sexual purity uh one man one wife forever um and then to hear that he had a kid outside of marriage uh, that was really i was like wait what uh, and actually to, actually to give you a sense of what that feels like at first i didn't believe it i didn't i didn't think it was real i thought it was and i thought it was just his detractors we're making things up and, and the church intentionally wants you to think that they tell you, they try to inoculate you against that by saying, Oh, any critics, any critics are just, you know, they're haters, they're de detractors. It's Satan who's speaking through them. So that's what I was taught to believe. And that's what I thought to begin with. Um, but then I actually talked to someone who was in the know in the church who was like, okay, sit down. 
sit, sit down. I got to tell you something. Um, it's true, but you got to understand why. Uh, and then they went through this long, this like long convoluted explanation, which was basically like, um, God's providence really needed moon to have a son. Uh, and therefore, it, uh, and his first kid was a daughter and therefore he really had to just like make sure he had a son and that's why he had this kid outside of outside of wedlock and i just i just thought yeah bullshit when i, I read that and i was like are you kidding me like if you can if you can justify that you can justify anything uh and that for me that was like no this is this is wrong um that was that was the real like penny drop moment for me okay and then the thought of leaving because presumably your parents were still you know, card carrying members, you know, and what leaving means with, with any cult means leaving everything behind, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, for me, like I was fortunate enough to go to a public school. So I had some friends outside of school. I went to normal university as well, which is great. Again, had like, you know, kind of normal friends and decent job prospects, like outside of, outside of the cult. Um, but still 90% of my community was from the cult and my parents were from the cult and and all of my parents expectations for me were completely built on me continuing this so-called pure blood lineage um and so um i that, that's a lot of pressure quite honestly um to put to put on someone and um so as a result even though i left it kind of left mentally when i was around 18 um i a few years later Due to all of that tremendous pressure, I accepted an arranged marriage to someone from the cult who was also in a similar boat to me. They had left mentally, but they still felt all of that pressure. So they weren't really a member, but they felt all the pressures. And our parents coincidentally suggested us to each other. And we kind of looked at each other and we're like, hey, maybe maybe we could make this work. And you know, maybe this could – maybe." Uh, and so we decided to do it. Um, uh, and yeah, I got married uh, at a pretty young age to someone uh, as a result of the cult. Um, we we were together for about fourteen or fifteen years, um, and then yeah, about four years ago we split up. And I think in the wake of of that split up, I sort of I feel like after that I like that's when I really left the cult because for the first time. I could actually look at things completely dispassionately and independently because my, my relationship, my, my, my marriage was still built on the cult. Like the very idea of us being together was, 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 you know, built on the foundation of the cult. And then finally, without that, I could then really kind of try to examine what had happened to my life and to my family. Did you have good times with your ex-wife? Uh, they say that arranged marriages sometimes people are happier on average uh, and i'm not i don't mean to belittle or be glib about you know the the horrible stuff behind why there are arranged marriages but w were the nice times yeah there were there were there were some great times um and we're still very good friends now and we share a son we co-parent very amicably now um yeah, it wasn't all bad. Absolutely, it wasn't all bad. And I, I know sometimes they can be all bad for sure. Um, to to your point earlier, right? Um, but we no, it wasn't. It wasn't all bad. Absolutely not. And leaving then, I mean, so so what was your relationship like um, with your parents beforehand, before leaving? Because I, when we hear these stories, of course, we've only got like we've got an hour here, right? So we don't we only get like a little glimpse and. I, we always imagine just everything being about the cult, but were you also like, hey, dad, do you want to go and watch the football or the, or the whatever, or they're just chatting about other stuff, or was everything based around the Moonies? 
with my dad, almost everything was about the Moonies. Uh, it, like, like super duper serious. Super Moonies. Like yeah. super Mooney. And I like, I'm, yeah, like we would never go to the football. Like never. It was always, and he was, uh, he was also also always working. So he worked for one of the Mooney businesses, um, working long hours, five days a week through the week. Of, often on Saturdays he was working for them. On Sundays we would go to church, and sometimes after Sundays on church he would go to the office to keep working for them. Um, so he he was working a lot, and I've actually I've actually told someone I've, I've told this. I forget who I was telling this to, but um, so. I, <laughs> I'm divorced and I have, and I have a kid and my, my kid has been on more holidays with both of his parents in the COVID pandemic than I ever went on with both of my parents as a, as a kid. Um, just cause they were like, my dad was always, always working. Like I did some stuff with my mom. I think like my mom would try, like she would take us to the cinema and we, I think it was a bit more kind of normal i would say my relationship with my mom but with my dad it just felt very very influenced by the church i would say i'm imagining a stern man i'm, I'm making assumptions here but stern yeah. and serious absolutely okay absolutely. conservative yeah. sort of old-fashioned serious religious and and you don't seem like that at all so you must have felt at times like you know how are we related you know i think a lot of people feel that often with parents yeah uh, my ex-wife still tells me she's like i can't believe you're related <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, yeah I, I think you're yeah, that's very true. Yeah. And then how did the conversation go about listen, this this your entire life, mum and dad, I I think it's nonsense and so I'm leaving. Um it was it's a good question. It was basically like well, I can see why you might say that, but you're not seeing it from God's point of view. Um and that to me, that's always like the, this is, this is what kills me about, about talking to people that have beliefs like this is like, there's, there's, if, if your belief is, is based on, you know, seeing things from God's point of view or seeing things from X point of view, you're pretty much impervious to, to any sort of outside reasoning at that point. You've, you're, you've coded yourself with Teflon intellectually and nothing's going to stick. Uh, no matter how much I say, like, if unless you're willing to unless you are willing to fundamentally revisit that principle about how you view the world then i'm not going to be able to change anything anything about the way you view the world um so unfortunately um that's kind of the the reality um of of their worldview do you still speak to them or see them or is, is, is there like a shunning thing it's not shunning um but i have in more or less intentionally uh, tried to keep the contact to a minimum um and i have to say in case they ever listen to this i would say like uh my my mom is making an effort um and my dad doesn't i don't really think is uh my mom my, my dad says he's my dad i think is still in the church my mom says she's out um but it's to give you some con she says she's out um but when your entire relationship with someone from birth has been all tied up in all of these concepts, literally every conversation I have with her has some reference to the Moonies or some way, way of Mooney thinking. And I'm like, mom, I can't, 
this is this is not helpful for me like you need you need to do the work to get this out of your head but i can't do that for you uh so like let's talk once you've done that and i think she's made some strides in that in that way but it's still very difficult for me to to talk to them when they still have these these concepts i mean just the concept of second generation is still a concept that they adhere to that you're pure that i was pure but i'm but i'm not anymore um so imagine imagine adhering to that concept in, in any capacity that your your son is now worse than hitler according to the um theology of the movement is it like you'll be having a conversation with her and then she might very subtly get in that you're worse than hitler no 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 so here's the, no she won't no 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 she won't say that she won't say that and i've actually challenged her on that on like um and she's like oh no i don't think that i don't think that at all um but she'll still use words like second generation um and and i tell her like mom like that's a completely fabricated concept like and, and this is what it means to me when you say that it brings back all of these memories um and so i we've kind of gone through this process of me, like of multiple instances of, of that just with different terms. Um, and like, if that happens like four or five times, then you have to, for me, I was like, mom, I just can't talk to you because every time I talk to you, you say something and it's just, it's just, it's just evident that the vocabulary of this institution is just part of the fabric of your, of your life and your existence. So like, and that's not something that I want to be part of my life now. It's hard, though. I, I, the devil's advocate in me is, feel, I just feel like I feel sorry for her. I suppose because it's it, sometimes you know you get so invested in something that your world shrinks, and then all you have is that. And then there's the religious side, and then there's the cultural side as well. So there's the beliefs, yeah. and then I'm just thinking of my own family with this sort of there's a lot of the Jewish stuff from when I was yeah. younger, and having to, and I'm I react exactly how you do uh, to a lot of it, and and. Ugh, it's just, but but I, part of me as I get older, I'm trying to be more accepting that it's just different worlds, different lives, and I just think a different way to how the, the, it's out of the some people in that community, you know, the community I grew up in, it's out of their worldview. They can't even get to, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I know, and I think it's really it's really hard, like when. So I think like one of the other things that, that that's happening here is I, I, I talked to um one of the guests on my show, which maybe we, we should we should talk about to, towards towards the end here, but basically one of one of the guests on my show basically told me that, that she felt that she was a a quote ticket to heaven for her for her parents. Uh and 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 this is actually how I think all of our parents viewed us. Like the church basically told them that they need to have kids so that they can create this lineage, which will allow them to go to heaven. Uh, so when you feel like you're pure, simply a means to an end for your parents to achieve this spiritual, you know, success or what, whatever, like, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's hard to, it, sometimes it, it's hard to think like, actually, I want to invest a lot in this when, when you know that that's, that was the purpose of your conception. Um, Do you feel like, like a commodity? absolutely yeah yeah we 100 percent we were commodities and that person who, who who used that that quote a ticket to heaven um to give you a sense of the way that we were commodities um she um she is what was called an offering child uh and what this is this is common in the in the unification church um 
So there's this idea that you have to have so-called second generation kids to go to, to go to heaven, right? Um, so then what do you do if you're a couple and you and you can't conceive? Um, you, you still want to go to heaven, right? So what the church will do is it will coerce another member to have a kid and give it to you so that you can go to heaven. Uh, and this is what the, 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 the woman who used that quote, I feel like a ticket to heaven, used that because she, she she's the ultimate example of a, of a commodity, um, of kids being commodities in the Unification Church. Uh, I mean, that's 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 a more extreme case than mine, but I still feel that I resonate with that strongly. And I think most people who grew up in the, in the cult would, would say the same thing. Yeah. It's really evocative. And I, th- I think it's it, that, that that's, it's really visceral because I think we can all relate to it on a very small level. We've all at one moment or another in our darkest moments and thoughts had a little feeling of like, am I just here to show off to something or for some reason? And nowhere near on the same stage as what you're talking about. But I think we can, maybe imagine how that might that might feel and that's i mean i I mean again it's not the same level at all but my mum used to want us to go to synagogue with her only a few times a year but i just outright refused and i was like a spoiled child going no i'm not going i'm not going and i had the feeling of it was very important to be shown it wasn't important for you know for for my parents to go to to, to my dad as well uh my dad maybe even more so actually uh that that the community see that the children were there and if not there was some sort of and that's more of a cultural thing than even a belief system but so i had a very tiny version of that and didn't like how that felt so i I could imagine that do do you struggle with that even today do you feel um at all you know do you have to remind yourself i'm not a commodity i'm not here to help somebody get to heaven i'm my own person i think so yeah i absolutely i i and and it i i'm still trying to figure out all of the psychological ramifications of growing up in that in that environment and i don't think i figured it all out yet quite honestly i think there's it feels like it's kind of a never-ending process where you've 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 kind of uncovered one thing and then you take a bit more time and you uncover something else it's 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 really i don't think i'm ever going to reach the end of that process and most of the people on my show i think we kind of say like this is a this is a long-term game uh to to figure this out i think when i speak to people who've been in cults i always want to say to them that although it is much harder and stuff of course because of the cult upbringing and and, uh that that it must be even harder because most people i think pretend that they've got all of their shit figured out so you'll never know like hang on but is this normal like baggage that Mm, or or is this a cult baggage so i sort of want you to know that a lot of people are pretending as well who haven't been in cults (laughs) Like they, they may not have been through the same experiences. I don't mean to undermine what you've been through. No, I understand. You know what I mean? Like they're, they've got shit going on. Like human minds fucked. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> but there's, I mean, one of the things you mentioned in the podcast, in your podcast is, is, um, what was it? It was, it was learning, you know, from a young age that sex is the worst thing ever in the world. And then when you're supposed to procreate, suddenly switch it on like that that's got to leave a lasting legacy no i mean you don't, you don't have to speak about your 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 own experience but people in general from the moonies yeah absolutely well i'm glad you mentioned that i mean i, I think um uh, well let's talk let me talk about some of the meta themes that i've seen on my show that that have have emanated from that um so one of the things well yeah so i i think i think a, a lot of us in general like relationships are difficult to navigate i would say um 
and we're a lot of it's like just knowing how to like hold your hold your own or knowing that that you're 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 you have your own worth in a relationship because you're basically told so to give you a sense of the of the background here i was told as a kid that like it was my job the fundamental the most important thing that i did in my whole life was to accept whoever the church told me i should marry uh and so we went through these exercises in some of these indoctrination camps that i mentioned we went through these exercises where we were taught to or we were told to envision the person that we that we liked the least um the ugliest the meanest the 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 person that we just didn't want to like the person you would never want to be with and just accept that you had to be married to them um and so that was what we were taught from a from a very young age um and then you know so then you enter into a relationship and at least like my marriage i th- i think probably one of the biggest flaws in 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 my marriage is that like w- neither of us felt like we could like we could really kind of like we couldn't really hold 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 our own we had every everything was we always had to compromise on everything because conflict wasn't like just we were never taught to navigate conflict and we were taught to just always accept that like you just need to you need to bend over for the other person. You need to you need to make room for them. And like sometimes there are just core incompatibilities. This is why people date before they get married to figure this out. Um, but they're like, I don't know. We were just never never taught that our needs were worth anything in the relationship. Everything, anything that we needed just had to be, um, you know, put on put on the back burner and ter- for whatever the other person needed. Um, so th- that's. I guess that's a starting point in terms of what we were taught and then what that's meant in terms of some of the, the other themes that I've seen on my show is, uh, and this is actually, this is really sad is that, uh, um, you know, one of the meta themes and yeah, this is a meta theme now. It's not a, it's not a singular instance. It's a meta theme now across my show is, I am, and I, I, it's more with, with women than with, than with men is, uh, women basically, um, when they leave the cult, um, they, they don't have a, a sense of, of sexual agency, uh, and and they they feel like um, they just have to do whatever whatever the man wants. Basically, uh, they they don't feel like they can say no effectively because they were never taught that they can say no. And as a result, unfortunately, multiple people on my show have told me that they have you know been raped basically um, because they just they didn't know that they could say no. Um, and yeah, that's absolutely a thing i imagine does that extend uh beyond the sexual to to just uh you know that feeling i I think you know we all have that to an extent as well of like what do i want what you know what what am i going to do in my life and and you're suddenly in a position having been in a cult or been in a repressive society where where you're told what to do all the time now suddenly you've got agency and you don't know how to do i want things Is, is there any of that going on yeah absolutely completely um I still feel that like I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out <laughs> what I'm doing with my life, quite honestly. Um, I, but I, to your point earlier, I suspect many people also feel like that uh, for most of their life. But I feel like, like, okay, I don't really think the be all and end all of my life is not necessarily being married and having kids. Uh, I've been married once. I have a kid. I don't think I want to do either of those things again. <laughs> Uh, to be to be quite honest, um, uh, certainly not in the short term. Uh, so okay, with those out of the picture, then what? I don't know. Quite honestly, um, it's kind of it's 
it's interesting, but it's also daunting. And I don't really, I, I feel like, yeah, maybe people have a better way to navigate that. How do you navigate that? Let, let, let me like, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I, I, it's something, I mean, the reason I'm thinking of it is because it's something I've always struggled with myself. Um, you know, what, what do I, and I, I feel, you know, that I grew up, I, I, I do think sort of, I, it's, it's hard because I don't want to give too much away that, you know, for people who, who could be hurt by that. But just I, I felt, well, I, you know, I went to a very, very sort of disciplinarian school, I think, which was a good school. And I'm very happy I went there and all that. But uh, like college, I have a high school, I mean, oh, you're, you live in the UK, don't you? So school means high school, uh, secondary I, I, school. I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just that feeling of like, what am I doing wrong? What, so you end up, you do, and I think a lot of people have this, and I'm sure a lot of listeners will relate to this. You end up so sort of hyper aware of your own movements and your speech and things in case other people might be upset by them. Them, you don't have much space to think like what do i want to do so i see uh, a cult or any kind of restrictive society as a an extension or an exaggeration of that on, under some sort of watchful eye uh, and then you do get to an age and again i'm sure loads of people listening can empathize with this it's probably like a certain percentage like 20 percent of people or 30 percent and you get to an age where you're an adult and you're free and you're like okay but what do i want and, and he, no matter how much you push yourself like you know i want to do what i want when you're with people you probably give away you give off like a, a, a supplicated or a submissive air that you don't mean to and then and then depending on the dynamics of those people they might then sort of take control a bit more and then you end up afterwards going like oh i wish i had sort of more oomph like that so so yeah it, it is it's really difficult it's really no one knows what to do we're all just distracting ourselves till we die anyway uh, no, that's that's interesting. And I, the one thing I have to say is that so I mean, so I was divorced, well, s separated at thirty six, uh, now divorced because it takes a while, obviously. Um, but uh, and I think, and I guess I had my kid when I was thirty two, thirty three, um, and now I'm on the other side of that. So my son's eight years eight years old now. Um, but the good news for me is like. I, like there are a lot of people my age uh, who might be thinking like, okay, now's when I got to buckle down. I got to get serious. I got to get married. I got to have a kid. Uh, like they're feeling all of those pressures that I know exist out there in the world. But I'm like, well, look, I've, I've already done that. Uh, been there, done that. Like I can, I can decide whether or not I want to do it based on having done it. I can decide if I want to do it again based on having already done it. Um, but I'm not, I'm not making that decision in a vacuum anymore since I've already been through it. And, and, and I'm also not feeling any pressure because I've already crossed that bridge. Um, so bizarrely, I'm kind of feeling like quite free at the moment because I'm not feeling any of that pressure. Um, so it's, it's kind of, it's actually kind of, kind of a good place to be, I think. Given where you come from, that's, that's, you know, that's fantastic to feel free. Um, t tell people where you'd like them to go and check out, you know, your podcast or in your Twitter and all that. I'll do an intro and outro as well on the audio podcast, but yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, just, I guess just for context. So I, I host a, a podcast called Falling Out, um, which is basically me talking to other people who grew up in the same cult as me. Um, you can find that out, find that at fallingoutpod.com uh, on all the pod, podcast play, platforms, excuse me, look for falling out. Um, I'm also on Twitter, uh, at falling out pod and Instagram at falling out pod. I'm quite active on Twitter at the moment with everything happening, happening with Abe. Um, so it's a good place to follow just kind of stuff that's, that's not covered on the show. Um, and I, and I also have to say, like the show that I do, I really try and focus on the stories of the people that I that I have on. Um, so it's less about all this other stuff. It's less about Abe than it is about the guests that I have. Although, although I will try to try to address that. And and 
and it is of great interest to me. But uh, Twitter tends to be a place where I tend to just tweet about some of that other stuff that just doesn't make it into the show, quite honestly. Yeah, it's a great podcast. Like I'd, I'd recommend people checking it out. That's you know falling out podcast, and you do balance the sort of the political ideological sides with the personal human stories. Uh, really well so yeah please everyone do support our guest and and check that out thank you elgin so much for coming on the edge uh with me it was great having you no worries my pleasure Thank you so much, Elgin, for coming on The Edge. What a lovely, charismatic and fascinating man he is. You are, whoever, if I'm speaking to him or if I'm speaking to you listeners, it depends, doesn't it? It's a fascinating person regardless. Do send some much-deserved love his way by checking out his podcast, Falling Out, in all the normal places. Personally, I found it fascinating to learn all about this marriage and children-centred cult and hope, I really do hope, that more leavers like Elgin feel emboldened to speak out after hearing him talk so bravely and openly do please keep reviewing the podcast on apple and Castbox, and even more importantly tell a couple of friends about this podcast so it can soar like an eagle into the sky that's all for today and as my listener daz h suggested i start saying you may now step away from the edge the problem with that is I want people to stay on the edge to listen to more episodes. So maybe that doesn't work, but it's a good suggestion, really. So thank you for that, Daz. And to all of you, have a wonderful day, evening, whatever it might be, wherever you may be. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.